Good morning. Good morning. You can find your seats and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis in chapter 11. Chapter 11. Again, good morning. Like many of you, I was born in the 60s and grew up in the 70s, became an adult in the 80s. And I remember a time in our nation where the goal, at least in the, the cultural goal and the, the media, was unity. I know it's hard to imagine there was a time in our nation where that was the goal. That was, everyone was trying to come together, and we, we believed that if we could come together, give peace a chance, we would be able to achieve great things as a race, as the human race. And you would see commercials of people holding hands across the nation. And there was this understanding that uh, maybe it wasn't called globalism, but there was this understanding if we could just all cooperate, if we could all get together, we could solve any problem. This was greatly enhanced in 1969 when Neil Armstrong and uh, Buzz Aldrin landed on the surface of the moon. And we believed that anything was possible if mankind simply came together, stopped fighting wars, and tried to achieve grand goals. What happened? Well, in my lifetime, I've seen that degrade to the point where all we seem to hear about is division. Listen, the devil brings about division, but sometimes, for the benefit of humanity... God does. Well, what do I mean? Well, when mankind comes together, generally, the result is not a good thing. There are those rare moments where it works for us, but for the most part, when mankind comes together to achieve some great and grand goal, the result is generally sinful. The result is generally uh, a degradation of society. When you look at our culture, sociologically speaking, uh, where you have cities and lots of people together in a small space, the crime rates are higher. People don't treat each other very nicely. What is that? Well, we have a sin nature. We've talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. We have a sin nature. And that basically means, yes, as Christians, where two or three are gathered, he's in our midst. But... Apart from Christ, where two or three are gathered, there's all types of problems. And we're seeing that in our world because Christ is not in the heart of the majority of people where many people are gathered together. Rather than achieving grand and noble goals, we simply degrade to a point of hysteria, to a point of rioting, to a point of crime-ridden cities. And so the world is a bleak place because Christ is not in the hearts of most people. But there came a time in the history of mankind early on where mankind came together. And it was probably the first time where mankind came together to achieve a great and noble goal. And that great and noble goal wasn't so great and wasn't so noble. It was actually a goal in defiance of God's word and will. 
And that is the distinguishing moment when a society comes together and unites, but the goal they're trying to achieve is evil and sinful and rejects God and his word. That's when we know we're on the wrong path. And God is so gracious because he will confuse those plans. He will confound those plans. And he will prevent mankind from destroying himself till he ultimately returns to set up his kingdom on the earth. Amen? What we're going to see in today's study is God intervening to divide mankind according to his will, not from each other as much as for each other. And as we see this account, I think you'll see that today, when we do come together, it's probably something that defies God and his word and not pleases God. But let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come together on Sundays and on Wednesdays and other times throughout the year and we come together to worship you, and where two or three are gathered, you're in our midst, and that is a, 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 a noble gathering. This is, this is an opportunity for us to worship you, to love one another, to honor you with our lives, to serve one another. And in that regard, we're blessed. But Lord, our world is coming together for some of the worst possible reasons, such as war. Lord God, there's so much of this going on in our world today. And we know it's because you're not in the hearts of many today. So we pray for our world as we go into this new year. We pray for peace, specifically and especially in the Middle East, but also in Ukraine and throughout the world. There are many in Sudan, in the Pacific Rim, in China, the Koreas. There's so many areas of our world today that are on the brink for our southern border, Oh, Lord God, there's so much happening in our world. And if we focused on those things, we would be depressed, but we don't. We look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we acknowledge that as we study your word today, you have a word for us that will unite us in you, but divide us from the wickedness in the world. Lord, we look to you in our study today. Please speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. As you probably guessed by now, this is the account of the Tower of Babel. And as we look at this account, it's not a long account, but there's so much here. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. We read there, now the whole world, in Genesis 11:1. 1, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, or Babylonia, and settled there, and they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. This is the account of the Tower of Babel, not just the Tower of Babel, but the dispersion of the nations. We looked at this about two weeks ago when we discussed the table of the nations and the 70 different people groups that were recorded in the previous chapter and how they were divided at one point by language and by clan. Well, that division came about as the result of what takes place in this chapter. Many of the clans of Noah's sons were originally one great united kingdom of man. After the flood, you had the three sons of Noah. They had children, many children. They were commanded to do so, and those children had children. So that within like three generations, if you consider a generation about 30 years, 30 to 40 years, uh, within three generations, there were probably thousands of people on the earth. I don't think there were many more than that. It's about 100 years later. 
And so you certainly have enough people that, that they could come together and start to accomplish great things. Now, this was only possible because they all spoke the same language. I have never been more aware of the limitation of language than when I went to Cuba the first time and didn't speak very much Spanish. Okay, I spoke high school Spanish, which you know what that is, right? Hola, or hola. <laughs> Buenos dias. You know, uh, that, that's not really Spanish. That's just so you can pass a test and get credits. But, you know, I realized when I was in another country, and, and there were a few people that spoke English, but for the most part, I mean, I didn't speak any Spanish at all, and I realized very easily uh, through that experience that when you don't speak the language of the people you're around, you can't accomplish very much, and you can't communicate very well. It's very difficult. Uh, it's, it, it's really a struggle, even with an interpreter. It is a struggle, and so over a few years of doing missions trips with, with uh, Pastor Joe and Andrea, I learned that, you know, if I was going to be effective, truly effective, I had to speak the language of the people that I was called to minister to. And so through many, many trips to Central America and even to Latin America, uh, I was able to, through a lot of study and hard work, become fluent in Spanish, and that allowed me to communicate with others. When you cannot communicate in a language that people understand, it becomes very frustrating. It's, it's almost nerve-wracking as you try to communicate to people and you're using the wrong words or you don't know the word. You're, you're trying to reach for a word. I find it even in English as I get older, that happens. But, you know, one of the things that, that I recognize is that was God's doing for a purpose. There is a reason and a purpose. Now, we can overcome that through love and the gospel message and through translators and interpreters and learning other languages. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. But there are many languages in this world, and some of them are vastly different than the one we speak. So, as we consider these things... Remember, all of this was possible, building a city, making bricks, uh, constructing a tower, only because there was absolutely no barrier between men and women, and they're communicating to each other. By the way, literally, the word means here, the description of their language, they spoke one language, is literally of one lip and one set of words. They were of one language or one lip and one set of words. Now, those of you who study language, means, this means that there was one phonology and one vocabulary. Not just the way they spoke, but the words they used were all the same. And listen, if you speak a dialect, even in the United States, you may call a soda a soda, they may call it a pop, you know, there are different words that have different meanings. There are words you can't use in some countries even within the same language, like in Spanish, there are words that you can't use in one country because the connotation is, uh, you know, not good. And I learned that a few times. <laughs> you know, so you definitely have to be careful. But at this time, they were of one lip. That is, they, they spoke the same way. And by, by the way, do you realize when, you, when you're learning another language, part of the reason you have an accent is you actually use different parts of your tongue and mouth and teeth when you speak. Spanish is spoken in the back of the mouth, and English and Germanic languages in the front of the mouth. And so that's why you will notice that people who learn a second language don't sound the same as people who are primary uh, language learners or native speakers. So 
At this time, that was not the case. There were no accents. There were no other languages. Everyone simply spoke the same way. I don't think they had a New York accent. But they, whatever accent they had, everybody heard themselves speaking back to them. And that makes for unity. That makes for common speech. It united the people in a way that nothing else could. And this would have been the same language that was spoken before the flood. Clearly, before the flood, everyone spoke one language. Now, some have suggested that this was Hebrew. Uh, Possibly, possibly not. But the, the language of the historical records of Noah and Shem that are recorded for us in the Bible are Hebrew. So some have suggested that, in fact, it was Hebrew. I don't know. But it is unlikely that Noah and Shem participated in the rebellion and the judgment of Babel, which we'll see in our account today. They were godly men. And just as sort of a, a reminder here, Noah lived for quite a while after the flood, but Shem lived all the way up and through the life of Abraham. So here you have a man. This is the account of Shem. This is his historical contribution to the book of Genesis that was compiled by Moses. And he is recording for us events that he was an eyewitness to. And he was alive during this time and communicates to us just how things happened. But I don't believe, because these were godly men, that they were caught up in this sort of one-world movement to build a city and to build a tower. They had united together as one great nation within the Tigris-Euphrates Valley that we're familiar with today. Isn't it interesting? The world always seems to be focused on this area of the world for one reason or another. Some would suggest it's because of the natural resources in that part of the world, but it's really because, as what God said, that he would make Jerusalem a cup of trembling in the, in the hands of the nations. It, this is the center of the world in so many ways. It's the cradle of civilization. It's the place we look to prophetically. It's the place that Jesus came to. It's the place that Jesus will return to. Amen? So this really is the epicenter of the world. And it was then, and it still is today. They found the plain of Babylonia as they journeyed east, looking for a suitable home. And this fertile valley, remember there's thousands, perhaps, thousands of people uh, at, uh, during this time, going from uh, eight to maybe, maybe hundreds to thousands. Uh, they found the plain of Babylonia as they were journeying. And this fertile valley must have reminded Noah and his sons of the pre-flood world, which they had witnessed. Uh, there were only a few people who had. Everyone else was younger by some, by, by some amount. So this explains why they named its two rivers after two of the rivers of Eden, which are mentioned in the book of Genesis. Very different rivers, different world at that time, but the Tigris-Euphrates uh, were, were named for those reasons. So the people of earth at this time, though not very many, certainly enough, were in defiance of God's command to increase their numbers on the earth, according to Genesis 9. Not just to increase their numbers in a particular place or a particular city, but on the earth. Implication, they were supposed to spread out and repopulate and fill the earth. If you've, maybe you've noticed this. When you get people together in tight spaces, okay, bad things happen. Have you ever been stuck in traffic? I'm, who am I speaking to? I mean, to whom am I speaking? I mean, you live in New Jersey. We had all that flooding recently. I was stuck in a lot of traffic. My heart went out to the people who, who lost homes and cars and everything, but the whole time I was there, I'm thinking to myself, I, I can't live like this. 
Traffic, traffic, traffic. And then how many stories do we hear about people just snapping on the road because someone cuts them off or they're stuck in traffic for too long or whatever? When you get a lot of people together, like in a city, as I said, crime goes up. Things, things happen. It's never really good. And the purposes of mankind at this point was to defy God. And that's never good. And in our world today, in our culture today, in our culture in America today, it seems like the purpose of mankind is to defy God and his word. We have a culture that writes laws to put in place practices and beliefs that are in opposition to the truth of God's word. We have people embracing ridiculousness, absurdity, and promoting it as equity and equality. Good things are not happening in our world today because men and women are not serving God. So that's the world we live in, right? And the last thing any of us wanted to be doing during the COVID years was to be in cities uh, because we know things were worse there. And, and, and more and more people are moving out to the suburbs. Why? They don't want to be living on top of one another. So what do we do in our suburbs? Well, we build these multi-dwelling units and now we're living on top of one another again. I almost feel like the devil has invested in Kehavnanian or something. Because everywhere I look, somebody is building multi-dwelling units. You can have a parking lot like this big, and all of a sudden, 30 people are living in these buildings. There's buildings on Bloomfield Avenue near my home where they literally had a little area on the side of the road, and they built these brownstones, or they're supposed to be brownstones, on the side of the road. I, I, I I mean, the, the door is here. The Bloomfield Avenue is there. It, 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 I don't understand it. The deer in my neighborhood don't understand it either. They're trying to figure out what happened. We ran this place, and now we have nothing to eat and nowhere to go. So I'm trying to point out that God never really designed us to live this way. If you're from another part of our nation, our great nation, like maybe a little in the south or maybe out west, you find out people are a little nicer generally. Why is that? They're not living on top of one another for the most part. So I have been to places in our nation that are spread out where you can, you know, I mean, you don't have to drive very far. I was in Pennsylvania the other day. And I'm driving out there about an hour and a half west. And I'm realizing, like, you just, you feel it. There's a vibe. You get like, oh, people aren't trying to kill each other. That guy just let me pass? I think that person waved. And they used all their fingers. <laughs> so, what's my point? Why am I going on about this? Because we were not designed to live like this. And God never called us to live like this. We're supposed to spread out and fill the earth. There's places that don't have enough people in our nation, and then there's states that have way too many. I think we're in defiance of God's word. I really do. I, I believe God has designed us. I mean, my, my heart and my gut tell me this is true. But the word backs up this understanding. We were called to spread out, to scatter, to fill the earth. Not to drain all of the resources in one particular location. But because of the way we are, we tend, in our sinful nature, to gravitate together. Now, after they have been called to fill the earth... After the destruction of the flood, 
God did not intend for them to band together as one people in Babylon. Babylon is never talked about in the Bible. It's talked about a lot in the Bible, but it's not ever talked about in a, in a positive way. It's always a very negative connotation. It represents false religion, a rebellion against God. So they, what did they do? They collectively decided to build a city with a great tower used, using baked bricks and tar. And later on, when God gives the law, and he talks about them building altars, he always tells them, I don't want you to build it even out of cut stone. I want you to build it out of loose stone. I, I don't want you to, to do this thing where you, where you manufacture an altar. Just take what I've made, put it together, and sacrifice, and give, and commit your heart. You don't need to build. That's the point. So rather than building the kingdom for God, they were building an empire for themselves. Side note, there are many churches that do this as well. Many ministries that have lost sight of why we're here. We're here to build the kingdom of God. Look around. You are the kingdom of God. When a ministry has become so bloated and fat that it builds itself at the expense of the people begging for resources to do so, it has become a Babel church. That's harsh, but it's true. See, if we're building the people and obeying God's word, then we're no longer going with the world flow. But if we look at the church and say, oh, this is great. Let's, let's build a city, and some churches are that big, and let's build a tower to the heavens, and let's get everyone together. The bigger, the better. I ask at that point, are we really, truly fulfilling the Great Commission? Are we building the kingdom of God? Or are we building an empire and a monument to our genius? That's why I'm not a huge fan of megachurches as you probably have figured out at this point. Now, God can work through those churches. Calvary Chapel has a rich tradition of having very large churches. I've been to some that are very, very spirit-led and some that are not so spirit-led. But at the end of the day, the kingdom of God, look around, you are the kingdom of God. We are the kingdom of God. And as long as we're building the kingdom of God, we're okay. When we begin to build our own kingdom, it's when we get off track, off purpose. So in their pride... They were building a tower, and it was a monument to their own great strength. By the way, I'm sure you've noticed this. Anytime mankind builds a tower or a statue or something very tall, it's almost always a monument to their own strength. The Washington Monument. The Eiffel Tower. Right? We think, we think of these, these pillars of modern ingenuity. I mean, look at New York. I don't recognize the skyline. I, I grew up here in East Rutherford looking out the window and, and, and looking at the skyline. And, of course, we all remember the towers, which fell on 9-11. But there's so many buildings that I don't even recognize it anymore. A monument to mankind's achievement. Now nobody wants to go there. And the descriptions that I've gotten from people who spend time in the city, I won't even share with you today because it's disgusting. So, so much for man's ingenuity. But here they were in their pride, building a tower as a monument to their own great strength. Now this tower became the prototype of all the world's towers. And back then, of course, they didn't have the engineering to build the towers like we see today, where they're grounded and rooted and built of steel and concrete. But what they did was they built what became, what became ultimately the prototype for ziggurats and pyramids. The ancient structures of the ancient world, in order to be that, that high, that tall, had to be built out. And so you see cigarettes. I, I was in, uh, I guess it was El Salvador. It was either El Salvador or Guatemala. I think it was El Salvador. And we, and we saw one of the Mesoamerican pyramids, which are a little different than the ones in, uh, in, in Cairo and in Giza. Uh, but just the same, they're built 
with these purposes to honor not so much the gods or even God, but men. And they believe men to be gods in some cases. And so if you're familiar with it, you know that these things were so, and there is archaeological evidence throughout the world of these pyramids and ziggurats that were built uh, in this way as a great religious monument uh, dedicated to the host of heaven. And by the way, some have suggested it was an observatory. Uh, but if you look at all these great pyramids and ziggurats, they're built uh, in, in coordination with the stars. So that certain times of year, it's, it's fascinating, the, the knowledge they had uh, for a prim, more primitive society, where a star would be in the sky here and here and here, and maybe the belt of Orion, and the three stars would shine through these shafts, so that if you were in the burial chamber of the pharaoh, uh, at that particular time, which may correspond to, let's say, the day of his birth or the day of his death, all these stars would shine light down these particular passages. Fascinating, and there's so much written and so much to see on this. But obviously it was a monument to mankind and to their ingenuity. and their, Maybe it was to observe the stars or worship the stars. They believed the planets to be gods or representative of gods. Uh, whatever it was, it was not a good thing, and God had not called them to do it. Uh, its top, the top of this great tower, more than likely was used for worship and sacrifice to the fallen angels, which gave them a lot of the knowledge of pre-flood. So whatever the case may be, this isn't God's plan. They had rebelled against God by refusing to disperse throughout the earth. That's the point I'm trying to make. Now, let's look at verses 5 through 7. How did God feel about it? Well, Pastor Tim, how do you know God didn't like it? Well, let's read verses 5 through 7. But the Lord came down, that is, he observed, to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Now let me address the grammar there. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I mean, we're confused enough with pronouns today, right? Why us? Well, remember I've explained to you the word Elohim, which is used especially up front in the book of Genesis, it's a plural word. It talks about God in at least three persons. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one, is the Shema. That's, that's something that the Israelites said and the Jews say today. Hear, O Israel, you know, our God, he is one. Elohim, he is Yahid, he is one. He is or, or Ichad. He, he is one. He is one, but he's three. He's three in one. And so, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6, I mean, you're talking about a, 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 really a chant almost that they would say, a, a, a great proclamation that here, O Israel, our God, three, he is one. So in order to communicate the language, which is plural, sometimes in English, plural pronouns are used. And it's appropriate to the original language, but it's confusing to us. Who is, to whom is God speaking? Let us confuse or confound their language. Well, it's just a way of communicating that the God, who is the three-in-one, had decided among the Godhead, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. God has decided he's going to confuse their language. Okay. Now, again, if anyone here has studied language, either their own native language or another language, and you learn so much about language in general when you study language, your own or other languages, especially other languages, uh, what you're going to find is that there are so many wonderfully intricate aspects to communication. Things that are just fascinating. Watching a child learn to speak, for example. 
It's, it's fascinating the way, the way God designed the speech centers of the brain and the auditory centers of the brain. Uh, animals don't speak, despite those YouTube videos you've watched. They don't speak. They don't. Parrots mimic. They don't speak. Only mankind has speech and the ability to communicate like this. So here's God displeased that they had disobeyed him by becoming one great nation. He watched patiently as the city and the tower were being built in sinful rebellion against him and his word. And he observed that they were capable of even greater rebellion with their common speech. And there was consensus within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, to intervene. God doesn't intervene all that much in the affairs of man. But here he intervened directly in a a major way. Look what happened in verses 8 and 9. We read there, So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because... There the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So God, in wonderful fashion, determined the easiest way to get these people to divide and do what they're supposed to do is to confuse their speech centers of their brain, to change the way their minds work. He literally intervened, and suddenly different groups of people spoke differently, As I said, perhaps thousands of people, and now they're all in small, very small family groups or clans. No longer one great people working together. So the Lord supernaturally confused their language, and this caused them to disperse, which is what he had intended all along. They were unable to communicate, and therefore they were forced to abandon the city, because they simply couldn't communicate. Without that ability to communicate, and it would have taken some time for individuals to learn other languages, right? And, and no, one, no one had, uh, what do they call that, Rosetta Stone, you know? No one had the ability to, to communicate that. I mean, how do, how do you, think about this for a minute, learn a language? Well, you learn a language typically from someone who knows both of the languages, your language and the language you're trying to learn. But nobody knew that. So can you imagine the confusion? So it was just easier to divide among the people that spoke the language that you could understand. It worked brilliantly. Of course, God chose to do it this way. God had inexplicably altered the speech centers of their brains. Now, he may have given each of the 70 nations their own distinctive language. In fact, that's what I suspect. We saw 70 different languages or nation groups in the previous chapter. So now let's say that there are 70 different languages. Now, over time since, there have been branches of different languages. Like, for example, uh, romance languages, right? You got Latin languages, right? Uh, you have five. You know, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, right? Uh, Romanian, right? Am I missing one? French? So, you know, they're very different, but they're close. So at one point, that was probably just Latin or a language like it. And over time, as people further divided for various reasons, the language slightly shifts. But can you compare Chinese to Spanish? Uh, big differences, I mean, completely different structures. and So you, you can see, this didn't just develop of its own. Just think about this with me. Just, just think about it with me. As mankind developed, naturally he would have gravitated towards one language. Why would 
you gravitate towards anything but one language. It, it doesn't make any sense. In commerce, uh, interaction, relationships. There's no other logical explanation than God intervened and literally rewired brains. Because there's simply no reason, logical reason, why people would develop languages so differently. Sometimes kids will develop their own way of speaking, code words and things of that nature. But that's just so they can say things that their parents don't know what they're really saying, which they know anyway, because kids are so transparent sometimes. But just think about it logically. This had to be God. And the word of God tells us it was. So... There is no better scientific theory for the origin of the various languages. All such theories seem to point to an origin in the Middle East, which is precisely what the Bible tells us. With time and effort, they eventually could learn to speak each other's languages, but you can imagine how difficult that was. So without the necessary manpower, the tower remained unfinished for some time. Now Nimrod, who we were introduced to two weeks ago, was the ruler of these people. He was a great man on the earth at that time, and he may have completed the tower once he finished building the city of Babylon, which he did finish building, just at a much slower rate than he would have had everyone come together. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, you'll all remember Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel and other books of the Bible, he believed that he rebuilt the ancient tower 16 centuries later. That's what he believed he was doing as he was building the city of Babylon. In fact, there's an inscription, his inscription, found on the remains of of a tower in Borsippa. Now, Borsippa is just seven miles southwest of Babylon. And some translate the Greek word Borsippa as tongue tower. Tongue tower. Why would you call it that? Well, we know why. But they were actually building what would later be the foundations of Babylon, a world system that's talked about right up until the end of time in the book of Revelation. It was called Babel, which sounds like the Hebrew word for confused, which is Balal. Okay, so it's not the same word, but Babel, Balal, Balal is the word for confused, and Babel is what they called it. It is associated by the writer with the resulting babble of sounds. Maybe, maybe you inadvertently turned on one of the Spanish channels one time. Have you ever done that? You're going through the channels like, oh, great, Star Wars. Hola. You know, it's like, it's like all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, something's wrong. I don't understand what's happening. I've watched those movies so many times I could watch it in Swahili and I would know what's going on. But anyway, the, the point is simply this, that it sounds like, to someone who doesn't know the language, it sounds like babble, doesn't it? Blah, 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 blah. You don't know what's going on. You, you think you do, and then all of a sudden you realize you don't. And then we think if we speak louder, people will understand, or somehow hand gyrations help. There, the Italians got it. We can say whole sentences without even opening our mouth. Not that we keep it closed very long. I used to joke that my grandmother could say a whole sentence without even saying anything. She'd be like, translated, you, what's wrong with you? Get out of here. Anyway, I digress. So it was associated as the babble of sounds that people started to hear. So the speech centers of their brains changed. They couldn't understand what other people were saying. They spoke. They understood what they were saying. They sometimes call this in a medical way aphasia. But something happened here. Now, now think about that with me for a minute. Aphasia is a neurological condition that can happen in a way where you use the wrong words 
You, you, you think you're saying the right word. You, you might say, oh, could you hand me an orange? And you say, can you hand me a dinosaur? You just like use the wrong words. It can happen where you say the wrong words. It can happen where you hear the wrong words. Now, that's a neurological condition that's documented and it can happen. But God can't confuse language. Are you with me? You see my point? We don't give God nearly enough credit. He created us. He can do whatever he needs to do. And he did. And so there you go. Now, the word babble is what they, what they call onomatopoetic. Don't ask me to say that again. That is, it sounds like what it is. It essentially is, this, is the same word in almost every language. So, it is probable that this entire effort was led by the great Nimrod, which we talked about in chapter 10. But God frustrated that movement. And by the way, uh, we know that in the last days, the world will try to come together. They will rebuild Babylon whether that's actually physically Babylon in the Middle East, which I suspect it is, uh, or it's representative of a European system centered in Rome, which I suspect it is as well. Uh, There's a great book called The Two Babylons. I think it's by John Valverde, but it, it talks about that in the scriptures, there's actually a spiritual Babylon and then there's a political Babylon. But anyway, all that to say that Babylon will uh, reemerge in the last days, but that global effort will not succeed. God will intervene again, and he will destroy Babylon. He will destroy it. So God is not in favor of this kind of thing, but the world came together to try to achieve it. And apparently this confusion of language only delayed Nimrod's plans to build the great kingdom, for he truly did ultimately build it. He and his family stayed at Babel to develop their own nation, which they did, and they probably became the Sumerians with Nimrod as their leader. And ultimately, we are familiar with that ancient civilization in the Middle East. So the dispersion, which we call the the scattering, the dispersion was by clan and language, resulting in nations within specific territories, exactly how God designed it. Each nation had to develop its own distinctive culture as best it could. Have you noticed that different people groups and different uh, ethnic backgrounds celebrate holidays differently? Even the same holiday. Like, let's just take uh, Christmas, for example. Uh, There are many different Christmas traditions because people develop their own culture, right? They have their own Christmas traditions. There's a a little bit of an interesting, I'm going to use the word interesting, one uh, where they they fashion a log. It's a European tradition uh, into what looks like a little person, and then they burn it in the fire. And uh, when I watched this online, I said, this is a little strange to me. But then again, going to the mall to sit on a, lap of a man with a fake beard and a red suit is a little strange too, isn't it? So, you know, we all have our own traditions, we all have our own cultures, and we celebrate our cultures and our diversity, and we embrace it. But, but, but here's the thing, understand, at that time, they had to build those things. Those things didn't exist. So this slowed mankind down quite a bit in his development. For a time, they would have had to live by hunting and gathering. They would reside in caves or even temporary shelters until they settled permanently. And we see archaeological evidence of this. We do throughout the history of man. The strongest would occupy the best nearby sites. You only have to have attended elementary school to understand. At the lunch table, the strongest always occupy the best sites. That's just the way mankind is built. Um, So I was generally in the back of the cafeteria, trying to stay low out of the limelight, didn't want to get picked on. 
But uh, others moved far away, and they were skilled in the arts, but they needed time to develop their resources. I mean, with all of our technology, if we took you and we placed you in the middle of, like, let's say, Stokes Forest in uh, northern New Jersey, and uh, you may be an engineer. You may be a very bright and educated person. But how long is it going to take you to, like, forge metal with a backpack with just your clothes and a tent? That's going to take some time. You know what I'm saying? Maybe never. And so where do I get the ore from and how do I melt it down? You see my point? Even technology, when you disband it from the interrelated and and interconnected relationships we have, uh, mankind takes a giant leap backward. And that's what happened. And it begins to explain why the culture after the flood took a turn backward for such a long time before ultimately it began to develop, especially in Europe, uh, where people came together a little bit more than in other areas of the world. So it helps us to understand some of the anthropological uh, issues that we observe over time through archaeology. But there you have it. Uh, So uh, they could all write, but their new speech required a new written language. So think about that for a minute. So now you're speaking a different language. Uh, Did they have the ability to write that language? No, they had to develop a written language to correspond to their phonetic language. It was a mess. That's the point I'm trying to make. Hopefully I've communicated it. Uh, within a few generations, all of these uh, attributes of civilization surfaced throughout the world. There's evidence of that. As the populations grew, nations reached into every part of the world. And in some instances, they traveled by land bridges to distant continents. Or how did you think that people got to Australia? Or, for that matter, to the Western Hemisphere. These existed for some time following the flood. That's been observed and proven as well. Examples include the Bering Strait and the Malaysian Strait. These are areas people could have crossed either by boat or even in some cases on foot. In other cases, they established colonies through sea exploration. Certain cultures, especially in the South Pacific, developed a means to travel and pretty much lived on the water. And so they settled different islands, and we see evidence of that today. They all carried essentially the same Babylonian culture, though, and their religion with them, which explains why, with vastly different languages and cultures, which were developed separately over time, as a base, they had the same religious pagan system. Gods with the same na- different names and the same attributes, or at least very similar. Why is that? Well, the Bible tells us why that is. Here's the explanation for much of what people try to figure out who study these things. They also carried a faint remembrance of the true God and his promises, and we see that even in Native American culture. So, yes, the truth was in there, but a lot of paganism was layered on top of it. And we see evidence of that. So this account by Shem, the son of Noah, uh, reflected in distorted form in the legends of these other nations. So you see the flood accounts, you see the different uh, legends and myths that came about. And that really speaks to the fact that at one point, not that long ago, mankind was united. But today, he's not. Okay, this is the account of Shem. I've said this before. I am very big on making it absolutely clear to you that Genesis 1 through 11 is history. Uh, People will sometimes acknowledge that Genesis 12 through the rest of the Bible is history. But even Christians, maybe many Christians, look at Genesis 1 through 11 and dismiss it as myth. Why would you do that? When everything recorded there proves to be not only possible but probable and is a logical and scientific explanation of what we observe. Well, because if you admit the word of God is true from Genesis 1 all the way through, then you're morally accountable to the word of God. 
And nobody likes to be morally accountable, especially if you're rebelling against God. Now, this is the fifth occurrence of the formula, which marks the key subdivisions of this book. I'll go over this briefly. Moses uses a word. It's toledoth in the Hebrew. It's, it's genesis in the Greek. It means generations, and he uses it ten times in this book. It's a word which, from which the book gets its name. The Septuagint, or Greek Old Testament, renders it Genesis. It's actually translated genealogy in the New Testament. So genealogy, Genesis. Uh, it's each major division, and it can be recognized by the recurring phrase, this is the account of. Now, maybe your Bibles divide this into the next chapter, but in, or next section of this chapter, but in chapter 11, verse 10, it says, this is the account of Shem. And the way it's worded in most Bibles makes it seem like the account is coming next. No, that's the, that's the line that says this. What you just read, that's the account of Shem. And does that make sense? Because Shem actually lived through everything that was recorded in that section and everything leading up to it. Everything we've been studying since the last account, which was the account of the sons of Noah. So Shem would have had personal knowledge of the events in chapters 10 and 11. And this, is, this uh, section was originally written by him with his verse as its signature. All Moses did was take those historical records, yes, history, and compile it with other histories, and then ultimately present to us what we know to be God's word. This is a terminology that's used in ancient Babylonian tablets. It confirms this practice. This is the way the patriarchs kept the narrative of their own generations. They inscribed them on stone or clay tablets, which last a lot longer than papyrus, which wasn't even being used until years later. Uh, And they appended their name at the end, and then they gave those tablets to the next person and to the next person. By the way, that's how history is preserved and recorded. Did someone ever hand you a book and say, this is U.S. history? Well, that's how history is passed on. And it was at this time, and that's why Genesis chapters 1 through 11 should be accepted and received as history that can be trusted and counted on to have been true. So these tablets eventually came down to Moses. He wrote the last section of the book of Genesis and compiled all these things, uh, organized it, edited it, take all the originals under divine inspiration, And the result was the entire collection finally became the first of the five books of Moses. So yes, I teach the book of Genesis as history. And hopefully you got that today. Why is it so important that we take the word of God as the word of God? Because without it, we're lost. There is no hope, as I ask the worship team to come up. There is no hope. In fact, if we do manage to come together, no good will come of it. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. In this world, we are without hope if we are without him. So, if you are without him this morning, and maybe, you you know, around this time of year, we get sometimes nostalgic, we get sad, we get depressed. Many times it's because we don't have hope. Christians, we have hope. In fact, we, we know, we believe, we have hope that the rest of our lives will be a blessing and will be blessed by God, even through the difficult times. But that's just one hope. We have an eternal hope that when we pass from this world and enter eternity, we'll spend eternity with Jesus Christ because of our faith in him. Amen? If you don't have that hope, would you pray with me? Lord, Heavenly Father, we cry out to you and we... For those of us who know you, we pray for those that don't, and we ask that you would touch the hearts of those that have questions and doubts and maybe for years have considered these things to be foolish 
myths and fairy tales. I pray that you would show each person that has had doubts the truth of your word, that they would open their hearts to your truth, and most importantly, that they would understand that if the book of Genesis is true, the Old Testament is true, the New Testament is true, then there's a truth they need to embrace, and it's that you came and died on a cross for our sins. You gave your life on the cross for each of us because we were sinners, we are sinners, we needed a Savior. You died for us, a great sacrifice on our behalf, but you rose again to fulfill the promise of the newness of life. And you have another promise that you're coming again to set everything right, to deal with all that mankind has done to this planet and to each other, to bring peace and a kingdom of peace forever. Oh, Lord God, I pray for every heart here that's embracing this truth in earnest for the first time. And for all of us that we would embrace this truth each and every day as we go into this new year. May we be reminded that you came and died for us and rose again and are coming again to judge the living and the dead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.